what is it that Jesus saved us from and what is it that Jesus saved us for? The Bible has a wealth of information and transformation when it comes to those questions. What, is, what are you saving me from, Jesus? What are you saving me to or for? And I want to just very briefly look at kind of three, and I want to say metaphors, but they're not just metaphors. They are they're really facets or components of the total picture of what God did. I said they're not just metaphor because they're not, they're not just figures of speech. They're not just symbols. They're things that Jesus actually accomplished. So the first thing that I want to point to is that Scripture says sin is a debt. And so Jesus came to shed his blood, to be nailed to a cross, to take away that debt. So, you know, in the life of Jesus, Jesus himself tells this parable, which is like a short story with a main point. And he told many parables that you're probably familiar with. But one, one parable in particular he tells this story of a servant who one day, as his master is going through his ledger, he realizes, man, this servant owes this massive cost to me. And so he goes to the servant, he says, hey, I'm going to settle up with you. And frankly, there's no way for you to repay your debt to me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell you and I'm going to sell your wife and I'm going to sell your children and just get what little bit of money I can to repay myself for the debt that you have caused me. And as Jesus tells this fictional story, but with a point, he says this man like falls on his knees and he's imploring, he's pleading with his master, like, don't, I, I'll repay. If you just let me work and work and work, I'll repay the debt. And by the way, at the beginning of this parable, like kind of spoiler alert, Jesus has already said an amount, like a, we would say dollar amount. Back then it wasn't dollars. But it was something that a day laborer would never, ever, ever in multiple lifetimes, if every penny went back to the master, he would never be able to repay. But he says, if you give me time, I'll repay it. And Jesus simply says the master feels compassion for him. And realizing you can't repay the debt, I'll forgive your debt. Now, I want you to imagine, like shifting from Jesus' parable to uh, one of my own, um, I want you to imagine that a child, like an adult child of yours or a friend comes to you and they say, hey, I desperately need a car. I found this used car right now, which is a crazy deal. It's just $10,000. Can I borrow $10,000 to buy this car, you know, so I can get to work and I'll repay you. I'll, I'll set up a payment system and all that. And you say, sure, okay, I'll loan you $10,000 for this used car. And in very short order, you find out your friend has totaled the car and is now coming back to you saying, so I have a problem because I owe you the $10,000, but I still need what? I still need a car. So I owe $10,000 for something that's not usable to me, and I still need to go in debt more to buy a car. So they, they ask you, hey, can we, just, can we just forget about the debt? And the answer is, of course, uh, no, we, we can't just forget about the debt. See, you could, you could in love, if you had these kinds of resources, as God does, you could choose to forgive the debt, but you can't just forget about it. Because what, what happens the moment that you, quote unquote, just forget about the $10,000 that your friend borrowed from you? It doesn't, it doesn't magically just 
poof into thin air, right? It doesn't, it doesn't vaporize the debt because you were magnanimous and you forgave them. The reality is, and you know this, if they've borrowed that money and they can't repay you and you choose to say, I forgive this debt, what you're actually doing is saying, I will pay the debt even though you're the one that incurred it. And this is one of Jesus' favorite illustrations for why he would go to a cross saying, I see you children, I see you sons and daughters, I see you broken world, and you have a debt because sin is a debt. And there is no way you could ever, ever, ever in a million lifetimes repay a perfect God. And so I want to come and say, give me your debt. Let me have your debt. Whoever you are, give me your debt. Let me have your debt. And as we're reading through this gospel story tonight, when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, it's basically like taking the ledger of what you owe God and just stamping paid in full with my blood, paid in full, you owe nothing. Well, a second facet of this is sin is not only a debt, sin is a stain. And when I think about sin being a stain, I think, uh, I think immediately of the blood of Abel. Remember this where Cain, like the first two brothers ever, like one was righteous, one was unrighteous. Cain, the unrighteous, kills his brother Abel. And then he realizes like in this, in this supernatural sense, in this mystical sense, it's like his blood is crying from the ground. Um, Shakespeare captured this in his famous scene from Macbeth where Lady Macbeth has talked her husband Macbeth into this scheme. Like, let's have King Duncan come and stay at our castle. And while he's here, we kill him. And then Macbeth has the throne. Like, he, he becomes king because the king is dead and, and we can do whatever with the body and no one will ever know and you'll be king. And so Macbeth carries this out and kills Duncan and there's like scenes where Lady Macbeth throughout is, is like washing her hands and scrubbing her hands. And as she looks at her hands, to her, it's like that, that famous expression of like, there's blood on your hands. And what Shakespeare is reminding us is kind of what the scripture shows us is that there is a, there is a stain, like not on our hands. It's that, that stain's long gone, but there's a stain on our soul. There's a stain on our life. And not just from murder, but from, from sin in general, that we can scrub and we can scrub and scrub and we feel that shame and we feel that guilt and that, that shame and guilt pursues us and it's a stain. And Jesus says, like, I've come, like, give me your stain, not just your debt, but, but let me take your stain. And he'll use language like, like this, and this is how we know that he's talking about this. He'll, he'll use over and over the language of washing. Like David understands this in the Old Testament, like Psalm 51, where he sinned, committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. Then he has Uriah murdered to try to cover it all up. And now he's convicted for his sin. And he's, he's crying out to God. He's like, God, purge me with hyssop. Like, like wash me with this scrubby plant. Like only you are the one that can take what is red and crimson and make it white as snow. And we see that language repeated in the New Testament of Jesus came and he sheds his blood to take that stain that's red. Like blood stains hard to get out. And he just wants to make it as white as snow and show you like you've been made pure. That guilt is gone. That stain is gone. That shame is gone. So sin is a debt that Jesus paid. Sin is a stain that Jesus cleanses. Thirdly, 
Scripture says sin is a violation of the law of God. And I know our society doesn't like to talk that way of like, oh, wait, there's a law outside me that has penalties for me. And that's, that is the way the Scripture talks because that corresponds with reality, that there is a law outside of us. And there is a just penalty for breaking that law. And the Bible says over and over that just penalty, that natural consequence is death. And I don't just mean that our bodies wear out and we physically die as Jesus did, though it does include that. But I mean, really what happens in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sin and God says, in the moment you sin, you'll die. And they could look at each other and be like, well, we're still here. So God's a liar. But, but they also felt, they, they sensed something that was true about what God had said to them, which is our relationship with God has been broken. And this is not some kind of arbitrary consequence, by the way. And it's not certainly as our society views it today of like, this is, this is a, a wrathful God with his over-the-top punishment of death. I, I could just illustrate it a couple ways. One, Jesus himself gives the illustration of a vine and branches And you can picture those branches two ways. One is those branches are connected to the vine. And so what's true? Like whatever nutrient, whatever life the vine is receiving, it's giving out to these branches and they're living and they're producing fruit. And because you all have different capacities and different gifts from God, different abilities, uh, different uh, mental bandwidth to juggle different things, different skill sets, you're producing different fruit. And you're producing different amounts of fruit, but you're producing fruit because you're connected to the vine. But Jesus also pictures that branch that's like, I don't need God, as Adam and Eve did in the garden. I don't need God. I can do life on my own. The reality is, as as you're broken off of that thing and you're the branch just sitting there now, what happens with the branch? It inevitably dies because it's been severed from the source of life. Or I know a number of you are in the medical community, and you can think in terms of like one of those artificial respirators that's kind of doing your breathing for you, maybe you've been in an accident or you're aging or uh, post-surgery, you just need help breathing for a while. And if you were to just unplug that artificial respirator or to turn it off or to disconnect a person from it, uh, you wouldn't be thinking in terms of like, wow, it's really over the top or arbitrary that that person died. You'd say, well, no, they've been, they've been separated from something that has been essentially giving them life. And this is how it is with God. The nature of God is he is life and he is the giver of life. And if sin breaks that relationship with him, then we die without him, okay? The Bible puts it plainly. The wages of sin is death. And again, the death is not simply we grow old, we wear out, we physically go in the ground one day, but it is a soul death, a separation from God. We were made for friendship and intimacy with God, and sin wrecks that. So again, here's what, here's what Jesus does. He says, if sin separates us, then put their sin on my account. And if sin produces death, put their death on my account. So as we were reading through this, I mean, it's maybe not self-interpreting But you ever wonder, like, why Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some are like, well, he was just, he was mistaken in his anguish. But no, the reality is, like, the Bible teaches that God can't look on that sin. He can't fellowship with that sin. And as the Bible says, Jesus not only took our sin, but it says he became sin for us who knew no sin, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God? So this is what he's doing when he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. He, he was killed so that you and I would never be killed in the sense of being ultimately separated from God. But even though our bodies wear out and die as a consequence of life in this broken world and sin and all of that, what we're going to already look forward to on Easter morning is that if he rose, we rise with him. There is eternal life. And that's just three ways of thinking about what Jesus saved us from. He saved us from a debt we couldn't pay, from a stain that we couldn't scrub out. He saved us from the penalties that we deserve but couldn't, also couldn't pay. And I want you to just think in closing, like, how did he save us from the debt, from the stain, from the penalty? Well, I had us lead off tonight, you may have noticed, with Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, like some 600 years before Jesus is born on this earth, Jesus of Nazareth, he says it starting in 52, actually, let me tell you about my servant. God's saying, let me tell you about my servant that I have chosen like my son. And he goes on to tell this story of how we have all sinned. It says like, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. But do you know the last part of that verse, Isaiah 53, 6? We've done our own thing, but the Lord laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. It says he was, he was bruised, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was pierced through for our iniquities. And I love how this like, all ties back with this message this past Sunday where we were, we were introducing Jesus and why is he coming to Jerusalem then? Well, because it's Passover. And the Passover, if you don't know, is, is the Jewish, it's the greatest high festival of the Jewish people like to this day. And for that week, and this, this year it began after sundown on Wednesday night, and it will go for an entire week for those in the Orthodox Jewish community. And they're remembering this time where their ancestors, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were in bondage in Egypt, and they were serving the pharaohs, they were building the, the temples and the pyramids and all of those things for hundreds and hundreds of years. And finally, one day, God comes to Moses and says, I've heard the cry of my people. I see their affliction. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to remind them that they're my people and I'm their God and I'll dwell in the midst of them. And this makes sense of Passover because how did the people of God escape judgment in that first Passover? It's, it's they recognized two things by faith. Number one, they recognized my sin is worthy of death. That's why people are going to die tonight. Because all of our sin, it's not that, it's not that those firstborn of the, of the Egyptians were especially bad. It's just that they recognize by faith our sin is worthy of death, period. And our salvation will come through an innocent substitute who dies in our place. A Passover lamb that a family would bring together and, and feast on and take its blood and apply it to the door saying something innocent substituted its life for ours so that we can walk out into the freedom that God intends for us. And so it's no, it's no coincidence, family, that Jesus comes on Passover 
And he says, like, I am the true and final Passover lamb. This one that John the Baptist at the very beginning of the story is like, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he lives as this identity as not just the good shepherd, but also the perfect Passover lamb. And he's like, now I've come at Passover and I will shed my blood and my body will be broken to save you from the debt, the stain, the penalty. But one last thing, what did Jesus save us for? In a post-enlightenment, Western, progressive culture like America, we tend to think of salvation in individualistic and future terms. Like, you hear this all the time, like, uh, where will you, where, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? That's a very individualistic focus and on eternity. And it's not wrong. If, if you individually repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus who gave his life for you, you will spend eternity forever with God. That's true. But this individualistic and this future thing is not the way that ancient people typically thought. They thought more in terms of a family, a unit, a group. And they thought like, what good is our salvation? What good is the gospel? What good is redemption? Not only for the future, whenever that is, but for right here and now. And as we've been seeing, like it feels like forever in our Ephesians series on Sunday morning, Paul has reminded us over and over, we are not only reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus, but we're reconciled to a family. And right now, that is true of us, that we are reconciled to other people who, who don't look like us, who don't necessarily think like us, except about Jesus and some core stuff from God's word. Okay? So the bad news that puts us all together in, in more of a collective than just an individualistic, individualistic thing is uh, we're all sinners. The Bible's like Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, all these ways that we could categorize people. It's like, well, the bad news is Jesus had to die for each person. But the good news is Jesus did die. And I don't know how this is possible, but I almost, I almost visualize like names racing through his head as he hangs there, not obsessing about himself and his own pain, but thinking this is for this family. This is for this family. I'm bringing together people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into one people, one family, reconciling God's people, not only to God, but to each other. And so if you look ahead at the end of this story, we find the host of heaven in the book of Revelation. They're worshiping Jesus, and this is what they're saying as we kind of get to eavesdrop into what's going on in heaven. They're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And by the way, that's what we're trying to do tonight, saying worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive all of these things, to receive all of my life for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them one kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So on this night, may we thank God for that love that before the world began, he had a design to have a family, to have a people who would know him 
who would be restored to their place, who we'll talk about Sunday, who have the purpose and the mission that was initially given at the beginning of creation given back to them and saying, all right, we've all messed it up, but I've redeemed it now, God's people in God's place, experiencing intimacy with him through the death of Jesus.